Okay, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. We had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. 
I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had, a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2, the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it. And it was many years later, um, almost two decades later that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C., my buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell. And you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago. Uh, You've moved from Brooklyn (laughs) to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually consider that deep dish stuff pizza, but that's another thing. That's maybe another show. How how are things? I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh, yeah. With all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh, no, no, Um, no doubt. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, look, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans move (laughs) a lot, and we are probably, as a people, the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think I wonder if that's true. That might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why Why can't we sit still? Yeah. Who knows? It's meta ADHD. (laughs) I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about (laughs) ears, Heidi. What on earth made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president and his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big ears. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld here. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's on the list and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all like slightly pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show. Yeah, that's true. You know, one day I'll (laughs) never forget this. I was at an airport at JFK. Our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who'd not seen each other in a while and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting. And it was fascinating. Well, what we started fixating on was ears. And I don't know why, but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird-looking ears. They are weird-looking. And if you think as we're talking, if you touch the top of your ear, I'm not in front of a mirror, but I have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top. And they have, it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something. They have all these little ridges at the top. So I had asked the doctor about that, um, and he just said, you know, basically... You would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face, you would hear totally different. Well, because you're just used. Everyone has their own um, way of hearing, and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face. Which I'm sure there's been ear transplants done, and maybe it was really weird. So, to, so, so, the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse? Well, they we it doesn't really. It's not quite like that. It's more like. You're, you're only born with one pair, and so that's just how you hear. And so it's, not, it's already optimized for you, for everyone. You get used to it. So, so he was saying if you, know, if you had this ear transplant, you would, it would just be super weird, and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear. So if I took your ears, your huge, I'm sure, ears, and slapped them onto my tiny head, um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got. Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. And, <laughs> and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. 
Tell us about oh Dr. Rickett. This is the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing, um, creating these hearing aids. And so he's at Vanderbilt University. And he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scroll, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column, you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. The, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they they don't need to hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering sound, more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing, um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. Right. And then and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the, the sound down, and it acts as an amplifier. But it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilants and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. 
Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, ha- you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that you'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some of those little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're, you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, that'd be a really... Oh, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, that'd yeah, be really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That would be weird. Fortunately, it's, uh, it's, you can't see us. <laughs> thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning, cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing, Dr. Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can, what you're doing is you're, most of us, like, you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he had, it's totally gross. And he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. He pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q-tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us and we'll keep talking about Chicago and hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories from all walks of life. And some of these stories are fun, some of these stories are uplifting, and some are tough. And today we continue our series on just such a topic, a tough one. We're digging down deep into the opioid epidemic. It's our American Carnage series. We've heard so much about this scourge, but for many, it still seems like something that happens in the news to other people's families. But in fact, drug overdoses are killing more Americans under 50 than anything else. Some 64,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2016, and 20,000 of those came from drugs like fentanyl. 
that fentanyl number was just 3,000 deaths only three years ago, a spike, an increase of over 540% in three years. Today we'll hear from Carrie Luther, a mother of four who lost her 29-year-old son Tosh to fentanyl overdose in 2015. Tosh was not trying to kill himself. He wasn't even trying to get high. He was just trying to get some sleep while suffering from itchy hives. But before we get to that tragedy and Carrie's message to other families, let's hear a little about young Tosh and the rest of this family. Tosh became interested in sports at a young age. He joined a local judo club and was small for his age, but was very quick. He became a purple belt when he was 9 or 10 years old. He left judo primarily because he became interested in baseball, uh, went into Little League and became a just a very, very good third baseman because of his quickness and a good batter and went on to make the all-star team. And we moved to the Aptos area of California and he went to the junior high school there and was a very good student continued his love for baseball, and then went into high school and was the most valuable player of his uh, sophomore year in high school. And then his senior year, he was awarded the Most Valuable Defensive Player Award. And he was always a very good student. When he was in his early teens, I was involved in going to church. And then over time, I joined a church that I'd gone to when I was a teenager. It's a small country church. Um, I sing in the choir. I sing on the praise team. I had small group studies at my house. My kids have all been embraced by those communities. And both the boys got involved in playing on the basketball league. And so they played in this church basketball league for several years and got, you know, just built relationships with people there And we had long conversations, you know, about what they believed about God and what I believed about God. And um, so they grew up in a home where they knew about God. Sports, school, church. Sounds like the great American family, right? Tosh had great times with his parents, his siblings, and his friends. We just had a really good time playing together. And he would go with me because I'm a celestial nut. I love meteor showers, and he would uh, humor me and go on treks out into the middle of nowhere in the dark in the middle of the night to watch the meteor showers. And He had a group of friends that he'd grown up with that just were his buddies, and they often came over to our house for barbecues. We would all play games together and play horseshoes and darts, and um, he and his little brother, who was seven years his junior, They and some of his friends would have these crazy games of wiffle ball. And even when they were, you know, in their adult years, it was pretty funny to watch them out running around and trying to hit home run derbies and so forth. But he was just like that. And of course, you know, he wasn't he wasn't a saint um, either. He was a normal kid and he'd get aggravated and lose his temper just like anybody. I'm not going to pretend that he was perfect for sure but he was a really good guy. As he became an adult, Tosh brought that same really good guy energy 
to his job. He became an employee of a local grocery store and grew in the organization. His co-workers loved him, and he was loved by his customers. They would make a point just to stop by and chat with him because he would talk to them and look at them in the eye like they were the most important thing in the world to him at that moment. And so he developed a lot of very close friendships with his customers over the years. Tosh enjoyed spending time with his colleagues and customers, but he also had dreams beyond his day job. He liked to write lyrics to hip-hop songs, and he was very talented. He had wanted to actually go into sports journalism just because his writing was so powerful. And so his writing lyrics was really a special thing that we actually learned more about upon his death because we found a book of his writings in his room and um, we took one of those and actually it's it's painted now on the side of his dad's skate shop in Santa Cruz and people come by and see this beautiful mural that the graffiti artists uh, that know his dad painted on the wall to honor him. But as Carrie has already said, Tosh was not perfect and their family wasn't either. And who among us is? When Tosh was two, his parents divorced. Though Carrie and Tosh's dad are friendly and close to this day, she knows that divorce is as hard for kids as it is for the grown-ups. I had to ask my children for forgiveness because of what I put them through in that process is that there's a void there. And they are. They're getting shuffled back and forth. And, you know, my attention wasn't always on them, giving them what they needed. And so, yeah, I'm sure there was a void there that he was trying to fill and escape from somehow during his teenage years. Those are the toughest years anyway. And so, starting in those years, Tosh started experimenting with alcohol and marijuana. But as he grew out of those, he and his friends took up cocaine. It made him not feel his problems. You know, when he was using, he would forget about that he felt maybe stuck in his job and wanted more. You know, didn't know where he was going to go next in life and wanted more. And so it was a struggle. His, uh, one of his friends always had it, and he would, you know, try to go over there just to be with his friends without doing it, and that was impossible. Tosh was always both thoughtful and transparent with his family, so it's no surprise that he went to his mom when he wanted to stop using cocaine. Just six or seven months before his death, he came to me and shared with me that He was struggling and wanted help, and could I help him find that help? And so I did. I knew someone who was a drug abuse counselor, and they referred me to someone else, and he started seeing them and was working on um, changing that lifestyle, wanting more in his life. He was telling his friends, look, guys, we're going to be 30. we got to stop this. It's not going to be like a light switch that goes on that just says, okay, we're ready now. We have to decide to grow up. So he was trying to make those changes, and we often talk about how could he, you know, make new friends so that he wasn't confronted with those things whenever they'd hang out together. And uh, it was difficult being a late 20s and not knowing how to make new friends at this stage of life. It was a challenge for him, even though he wanted it badly, and he continued to go to counseling. He was going to drug abuse counseling 
to deal with the issues that were causing him to want to do drugs. And he wasn't not taking responsibility for that. He wasn't saying, oh, it's because of this, you know, it's not my fault. It's because of this, this, and this that I want to use drugs. He knew it was within him. And again, that's Carrie Luther talking about her son, Tosh, who died of an overdose from illegal fentanyl. And we're bringing you these stories, the epidemic that's ravaging the country. It's an American carnage. Several experts have used that term. And when this many people die from an illicit drug, we got to bring it to your attention. We've got to tell the stories. When we come back, Tosh's story, Carrie's story, so many American families' stories, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Carrie Luther and her son Tosh. And quitting cocaine was no easy feat for this young man. But ultimately, it wasn't this drug that took his life. Here's Carrie on a few seemingly normal days that led to the greatest shock of her life. It was a Sunday and he came by my house after work just to say hi, because I live near where he worked, and, you know, as young adults will often do with their parents, he came in the house and said, hey, Mom, what you doing for dinner? <laughs> so I just said, well, I don't have a plan, because I actually have a meeting at church tonight, and I think the World Series was on, so I said, why don't I order you and your brother some pizza before I go, and I can pay for it on my way out, and they'll just deliver it. And he was, oh, no, you don't have to go to that trouble. And I said, oh, it's no trouble at all. Uh, Colton has to eat, too, and you guys can watch the game together. I would love to do that. And we talked a little bit about, you know, how things were going with his girlfriend and how work was going. And and uh, when I left, he said, I love you. And I told him I love him. And then I went off to my meeting. And then the next morning I left for... Uh, staff retreat. I, I was on the executive team where I work, and I was there overnight and uh, came back the next day around 1, 2 o'clock, and I was in the area of my granddaughter's elementary school, and so I offered to pick her up for my daughter and take her home. And I did that and got to visit with her for a little bit, and brought her home, and then went back to my house and was working on my budget for uh, the following year and um, I got a phone call and uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Tasha's oldest sister, um, was calling me saying that her dad, Tasha's dad, was trying to get a hold of me and that he'd gotten a call from the sheriff's department that Tosh was dead. You can't even imagine. Well, Carrie, Mom... She raced to her son's home. The sheriff's deputy that was up there wouldn't let us go in to see him when we got there until the coroner came in to do their little, just an investigation. He came up and, you know, looked for what he needed to find, and all he found was blister packets and this little pouch with a Motrin bottle in it. 
and they took Tasha's phone, of course, to see if they could find anything. And they weren't really sure. It appeared to be an overdose, but they couldn't find anything in his room to suggest what it was. So I never did get to see Tosh before they took him away. His girlfriend, Zoe, who was just devastated, of course, told me that I shouldn't, that it didn't look like him, and uh, that I should remember him the way I remembered him alive. And so I didn't go see him. And um, they took him away. And then, and then, over the course of the next couple days, of course, they had t done an autopsy and a toxicology report. And um, I got a call the day we were planning his services, which was uh, about nine days later. And it was the coroner, and he said that as a result of doing that tox report that he had 14 nanograms of fentanyl in his system and that they had found three-quarters of a Xanax in this Motrin bottle they'd found in his room and that the FDA had taken it and tested it and that it was fentanyl and not Xanax, and it looked exactly like a Xanax. Tosh died from taking one quarter of one single counterfeit pill, illegal fentanyl masquerading as prescription Xanax. Carrie soon pieced together how her son unintentionally overdosed on this deadly fentanyl after speaking with Tosh's doctor, his girlfriend, and law enforcement. He had had a case of hives for about six weeks prior to this. He had planned to go that day, actually, to get blood work done to find out what was causing his hives, and they were itching him terribly, and he was taking Benadryl at the direction of his doctor, but they were still itching. She said he called because he couldn't sleep because of the itching was so bad and talked for about an hour longer, and they agreed when they hung up that he would call by 11 o'clock the next morning because they both had the day off. And they would go do something together, and um, she didn't hear from him by 11 o'clock or even 11.30, and so she started calling him, and he didn't answer. And she called for another hour or so and decided, you know, this isn't like Tosh. I'm going to go see if he's okay. Um, but she got up there, and his car was in the driveway, and she could see from outside his bedroom window that he was in bed. She couldn't get in at first, and she was able to jiggle the lock and get inside and uh, went over to him and put her hand on his shoulder, and he was cool to the touch, and she rolled him over, and he had vomited um, onto his pillow, and she saw that his lips were blue, and so she called 911 immediately, and they told her to lay him on the ground and um, start CPR until they got there, and that was probably in about 15-20 minutes because it's a very narrow road to get up there and with a fire engine that's not easy to do. So they got up there and took over and they did everything they could but it was way too late. He'd been gone for hours. The equivalent of two grains of table salt is enough to kill a person of fentanyl. And that's how my son died and you know he he didn't plan to die that night. He just wanted to sleep. And if it had been Xanax, he'd be here today. And um, 
and now it's an epidemic um, nationwide. I don't know about the world, but I know in the United States, you know, that these people are manufacturing these fake drugs to look like Oxycontin or Xanax, and I don't even know what else. And they're using pill presses to make these fake medicines, and people are taking them not knowing that they're taking fentanyl, which what I've learned is a, a hundred times stronger than morphine or heroin, and it just shuts down the central nervous system. And so Tasha's doctor, with whom he was treating for the hives, told me that he essentially just stopped breathing and went to sleep and never woke up. Wow, what words. He didn't plan on dying that night. He planned to sleep. This terrible loss, by the way, was in 2015, but Carrie is still hard at work telling her son's story to try and help others. I spoke at a local high school to a thousand students to tell them, you know, he was just like you. He was an athlete. He was a good student. He loved music. He loved the Giants. He loved the Raiders. He loved his family. And he didn't plan to die that night. You know, he didn't know what he was taking, and neither can you. You think you can trust people, but you can't know where that came from. And so you don't want to be that person that's lying in a casket, and your family and your friends are looking at you saying goodbye. You have to just say no and help each other say no because you can't know what you're taking. And then I spoke to probably 40 or 50 parents and I told them Tasha's story and I said, you need your kids to know this. Tell them my son's story and tell them that you don't want to lose them to something so senseless because there's people out there that don't care. They just want to make money and they will do whatever they can to make money off of off of your children. Tell your kids the story. They need to know it and that it isn't worth it. You know, they're going to, they have a very full life ahead of them and they are loved. Tell them how much they are loved because we didn't even know how much my son was loved until he died. And we had 400 people come to his service. And that's not the way I want to honor my son, but now I have no choice. Please, you know, don't don't take anything you don't get from your doctor. I didn't know he had done that. So many people take these pills that they're getting online, and those aren't even safe in many cases. The only thing I have control over is to tell my son's story, to try to make a difference. And so that's my hope, is that people will hear his story. And it'll save a life, and maybe, I hope it saves lots of lives. But I miss him every day. I miss him every day, especially around the holidays. It's the hardest. You know, it's just not the same. I have three other children and my grandchildren who I adore, but it's not the same without him. And those are tough, tough words to hear. And thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your son's story, your story. And folks, this is something we got to educate our kids on. That supply chain of where they get their drugs, we've got to know where they're coming from. 
we got to let our kids know if it doesn't come from your doctor or a close supply chain, don't, don't take the drug. And this is Our American Stories. Carrie Luther's story, her son Tasha's, and so many tens of thousands of Americans suffering from this opioid epidemic in this country from illegal opioids. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in the year 1919, an American giant was born. A giant that you likely don't know. A giant whose impact we all take for granted now as a fact of American life. A black football coach at a time when black players in the South pretty much had no option but to play at historically black colleges. But this would change, and would change because of this coach's success. From 1941 to 1997, he coached at the same university. You heard that right, 1941 to 1997, in a profession where guys bounce around every three to five years. It was a tiny but mighty university in Grambling, Louisiana, called Grambling State University. And while there, he racked up 408 wins, surpassing Alabama's legend, Bear Bryant, and his previous record, a record that has since only been surpassed by one man, the late Joe Paterno. His team's success inspired integration. White teams wanted that success, and his dominant players especially inspired integration, starting with Tank Younger in 1949, the first NFL player to come from an historically black college, He would coach 111 NFL players, including Hall of Famers Willie Brown, Willie Davis, Charlie Joyner, and Doug Williams. By the way, Doug being the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl and who also won the MVP award. And in 1985, this coach even graced the cover of Sports Illustrated, the only cover the magazine has ever devoted to a program at a black college. This coach's name, Eddie Robinson. And for the hour, we're celebrating his life. And we're mostly going to do it through the story of one man whose life was forever changed by Coach Robinson as an example of his equally important legacy of molding men. This man we spoke with was Nemiah Wilson, then just a kid from Baton Rouge who wanted to play some college football. Now, Eddie had talked to my high school coach and everything. And so he said, uh, Coach, he said, Nehemiah, go get a lot of scholarship offers and everything. And he said, we need to kind of sew him up early. 
So Eddie said, man, he said, uh, say, uh, Bird, he said, I got Jerry Robinson, yes, a sophomore, All-American. He said, I got Howard McCowan, I got Preston Powell, I got Jamie Caleb. And he said, hey, all of these guys are 6'2", 200 and stuff like that. And he said, hell, he's a 155-pound kid and everything. So uh, Bird said, Coach, I want you to come see him. And everything like that. He said, because I'm putting him in the car and bring him up, but I want you to come see him. He said, well, I ain't going to have time to go see him and everything like that. So Coach said, all right, you go let him get away. Well, little did Bird I know, Robinson had went to my mama's job and talked to her. And when she came home, she came home to me crying. And uh, I said, what's wrong, mother? She said, baby, she said, I just met the most wonderful gentleman I've ever had. And I said, well, who? And everything. She said, Coach Eddie Robinson. And I said, well, I said, no, you didn't see Coach Robinson. I said, you saw somebody else. I said, Coach, Coach Bird told me he wasn't coming to see me. I said, baby, I'm telling you, he came to my job. And he told me how bad you wanted me. And he wanted you to play and everything. And he said, uh, I didn't know what to say. Because I didn't know what you were going to do or what you were going to go anyway. She said, but, baby, you know, he actually cried in front of me. <laughs> Somebody told her, he promised her that I was going to class. He promised her that I was going to church every Sunday. And at that time, you were getting a little subsistence with your scholarship of $20 for your, your laundry and stuff like that. And he said, if he don't go to church and everything, he won't get that twenty dollars and everything like that. She say, "I'm gonna do the same thing that you've been doing with him all his life." <laughs> and when Nehemiah got to Grambling, he and Eddie discovered a connection that they didn't know they had. My high school instructor was his mother-in-law, and uh, her name was Mott. And I was her favorite student. And so when he found out that she was my teacher and everything, then he started telling me things, you know, we started doing things. And then all of a sudden, his wife adopted me as her son at college, you know. And they got into quite a few arguments about me playing or not playing. And so... From that point on, you know, it was always a, a man that had a foot in his house, you know. An adopted son whose father was never a part of his life. When Nehemiah's father returned from World War II, he didn't return to his family. He started another family elsewhere. So Nehemiah needed a father figure. But Eddie didn't see this at first and later wrote in autobiography, Never Before, Never Again, here's the quote, I was having so much trouble with Nehemiah. I told my wife, Doris, I needed to talk to her about him. She looked at me and told me, you might be a pretty good coach, but you aren't real smart where the guys are concerned. Right under your nose, the reason you're having trouble with this young man is you carry him every place you carry Eddie. And that's their son. He sees what you're doing for Eddie and how you and Eddie are getting along. Nehemiah wants you to be his daddy too. Doris helped me to really find that out. I wasn't aware of that fact, that it was happening. Ladies pay more attention to that kind of thing. Nehemiah had come from a home where he didn't have a daddy. 
I guess I became a father figure to Nehemiah, a mentor before I really knew what the word mentor even meant. I wanted to model my behavior for him to show Nehemiah how to succeed. So I began to include him with Eddie Jr. We took him to church, had him over for meals. I got better and better for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is still a part of our family. He's still my heart. So much more from this man, this legend, and in the end, this surrogate father for so many men. And this is what made him great. The great, late Coach Eddie Robinson of Grambling State after these messages. stories and we continue with our celebration of the life of coach Eddie Robinson the legend who made Grambling State University well Grambling State University and we've been talking to and we'll continue our conversation with Nehemiah and the father figure that coach Robinson became here's Nehemiah on what coach Robinson was trying to teach him all along you know, a young kid just coming out of high school, and everybody was offering you all kind of stuff, and you didn't know the value of any of it. You didn't know what to do with it or how how you go maintain it or, or anything. And he come back and he said, I'm going to make you a man first and a football player second. He said, because if I make you the football player first and not the man, he said, you ain't going to have no foundation to stand on and everything. And it took him four years to get that concept in my head. And now we're going to dive into how Coach Robinson did what he did. And one of the lessons he taught Nehemiah was about magnanimity, to have a vision for the future. I was up at Eddie's house, and uh, he had four TVs in it, one room and everything. So I said, Coach, I said, what is all these TVs doing up in here? And everything. he said, hell, son, he said, on Sundays I got players playing with everybody. He said, I'm looking at every game and everything else like that. And he said, what that you got in, my hand, in your hand? I said, well, I got a scrapbook in my hand. He said, your scrapbook for what? I said, from my years of high school football and everything like that. He said, he said son, put it away. I said, what do you mean? Put it away. He said, let me tell you something. He said, everybody come here got their own scrapbook and everything. He said, that scrapbook is your past. He said, but everybody here is good. Now, you're just not competing against guys at your school. He said, you're competing with guys all over the city and everything, and they got their own scrapbook, but it ain't what you've done in high school is what you're going to do here and all you're going to fit in and everything, you know. I thought it was cruel at the time, you know, and everything. But then he said, 
You'll you'll get over it. You'll get over it. Coach Robinson also taught Nimayo one of the most important lessons about women. I started dating a girl from New Orleans and everything, and so uh, we were sitting down in the lunchroom, and I was trying to be like all the other guys to the upperclassmen that had the girl. I'm saying, hey, I'm the man. You got to do whatever I want you to do, and like I want you to do it and everything. So she got up and walked out. And I said, don't walk out on me. I said, don't you know I'm the man? And everything, she kept going. So the next morning I went to breakfast, and she was in there, and I said, how you doing? She got up and left, you know. And so when I got back, I had a, a backfield coach named Tony Williams, and he told me, he said, well, I saw you talking to Miss Rito on campus. And I said, who is that? He said, the girl that you're dating now. I said, well, I'm not dating anybody now. But he said, this one here walking down the sidewalk. Oh, I said, yeah, I said, I know her. And everything. He said, ain't none of these guys ever, ever been able to sit at a table with her and talk to you and hear you all of a sudden you talk to her. I said, I was talking to her, but she gone. And everything like that. So he said, well, what happened? I said, well, I told her I was the man, and she had to do what I say, and if she couldn't do what I say, don't come around me. I said, she got up from the table, walked away, and never came back, and everything. And so he told me laugh, because, you know, he was that kind. And he thought it was funny, so he went and told it to Coach Rob after practice where were all the coaches meeting. And so Coach told me, he said, he said, he said, Nehemiah, he said, look, boy, he said, I'm getting kind of tired of you. He said, listen, he said, what do you think of your mama? And I said, my mama is the best woman on earth and everything like that. He said, don't you know that that girl eventually is going to be somebody's mama and everything, and you trying to tell her that you, you want her to be your lackey, your, your slave or whatever, and she don't have a mind of her own, she got to do what you want to do, like you want to when you want to? He said, do you want that for your mama? I couldn't say I couldn't say nothing but no, and everything. He said, "Well, treat the woman with respect," and everything else like that. And he made me go over and apologize to her, and everything, which was the hardest thing I figured I had to do was apologize to a woman. But I didn't know how to treat none. You know, I mean, you 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 basically in a house without a father and everything, and you, a, a young man in that house and everything, girly things is something you'll never do and everything. And they had to listen to you. And so my mom heard me say that and everything else like that. And so she came, and when I got home for that weekend, she said, uh, Sonny, she said, I want you to go in the house and wash the dishes. So I said, Mom, I can't do that. I said, that's a lady's job. And, boy, she, I knew she was going to try to hit me. So I jumped to her right side and forgot she was left-handed, and she cold-cocked me with her left hand and everything. And that night I was in the bed, and I, I hear her and Eddie, Eddie on the phone talking and everything. She said, Coach, he said, he ain't coming back and everything else like that. And she said, I don't know what to do with him. He's on the corner here 
and everything hanging out with the boys by the movie theater and everything. I ain't got nothing for him to do here. He said, what what, you, what should I do? He said, get him to the bus stop and everything. So after the weekend, oh, we got to the bus stop and everything else like that. She said, now you just wait here. Somebody coming to see you and everything else like that. Where Eddie was And he said, boy, get your butt on that bus and let's go home. And by the way, as he was teaching Nehemiah about women and about responsibility and about life, we learn uh, in his autobiography, his co-author, Richard Lapchick, said that of all of his accomplishments, he maintains that his great achievements are that he had had only one wife and one job for 56 years, Eddie Robinson. One wife and one job. And here's Eddie talking about his marriage in that book. Doris and I just wanted to make our marriage special. We always said that the key in marriage was always knowing what you were saying because you can't take it back. While you can be forgiven, you can't take it back back once you've put it out there. Doris would tell me that some of her friends had their husbands or boyfriends say in the heat of an argument something like, you're not worth a damn, or something like it. Doris would tell me those women would never forget those words, even if they forgave their men. That was a great lesson for me with Doris. He also went on to say, We have a lot of fun together, and we go places together. I'm not criticizing them, but I see too many men not taking their wives with them or not taking them out to shows or dances. There are many times I think my romance with Doris aggravates them because They don't look so good to their own wives when their wives look at Doris and me. We hug and kiss each time we meet, even if we saw each other only hours before. We need each other. We need to do almost everything together and let our kids see us. Let the team see us. Let them see what a marriage can really be. We call each other a name. I call her darling, baby, and dear. Doris calls me baby. I come home every day at noon. We have lunch with Doris. No matter what, I'm going to come home to eat that sandwich with her. We are both trying to lose weight, but it's not really working. Many friends want to take me out to dinner, and that's fine to go out. However, I'm going home to eat dinner with Doris first. We try to go out to eat together regularly. Couples have to learn to get out alone or with friends. It's just one more piece of a successful marriage. All the pieces add up to making it better. What a coach. What an example. We learned this about John Wooden, too. He taught his boys, look, lunch with my bride every day. Winning's important. Basketball's important. But let's put things in perspective. And boy, isn't it the worst thing in the world to talk to work for somebody who talks about their family and their family values and then never gives you a break with your family? Just the worst. Not Eddie Robinson. Not John Wooden. They lived what they said. They said what they lived. And we all need people like that in our lives. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Coach Eddie Robinson for the hour. This life deserves it. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories for the hour, a celebration of the life of Coach Eddie Robinson, born on this day in history in 1919. And by the way, all of our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, one of the finest places in this country to study all the things that matter in life, art, philosophy, history, sports, everything actually, under the sun and faith, all no better, no better place in this country to study. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. They have a dozen terrific online courses, and you can capture them and catch them at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And back to Coach Robinson's story, and we've been playing you clips from Nehemiah Wilson, who played for Coach at Grambling, grew up without a father, and was fortunate that Coach and his wife Doris viewed him as an adopted son, an adopted son that they taught how to be a man, including ingraining in him the commitment to pursuing perfection. One day we was having uh, a hard time at practice. He wasn't satisfied. Nothing was satisfying him. So he said, okay, gentlemen, he said, we're going over behind this sled. And they said, we're going to hit this sled until I hear thump. He said, but what I've been hearing is thump, thump, thump. Somebody is a step late or a step ahead or whatever. And he said, we're going to hit this bag until I just hear one thump. And boy, we was out there. They were getting dark and everything. His wife didn't come down and said, Eddie, when not you let them boys go? They got to go to class in the morning and everything. He said, Fear Rat, turn on the light. That's what he called the groundkeeper, Fear Rat. Fear Rat, turn on the lights and everything. And so I got to fussing about something. And uh, he said, Here you are fussing, and I'm trying to get perfection and everything else like that. I said, Well, Coach, is there anybody out here that you hate bad enough to pay this kind of price you're making us pay tonight? He said, boy, let me tell you something. He said, look, Jake Gators is a good friend of mine. He said, but hell, I ain't been able to whip, whip Florida and them in years and stuff like that. And he said, what I'm afraid of right now is that Jake going to die before I whoop his ass. <laughs> I started laughing. He said, man, I was at a banquet with Jake. And he said, I told him, he said, damn it. He said, Jake, don't you die on me, because I'm going to beat you at something before you die or I die. And he said, if it ain't football or whatever, he don't give a damn it. He said, but if it's root to pig, I'm going to beat you before you die. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that kind of fire he had in him. And he said things not with malice, but with candor where you laugh and you say, well, wow, this guy, is, he's, he's something, you know, and everything like that. And uh, we'd be laying in, the, in the, the dorm and everything, and we would say, we better get up because Coach Rob be coming through here in a minute. And he would put on a, a, one of Ray Charles' old records. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. When you know that, when you hear that album, you're supposed to be already dressed and down the hill and everything. And he would pass through the dorm about a half an hour before blowing the whistle and everything. And when you get down the hill, if you're late, 
you're going to run them bleaches 10 times or so before or after practice, whatever you want to do. But you go run those bleaches and everything else like that. And so uh, all the guys complain and moan about it and everything else like that. And uh, he say, look, I'm sick of y'all with this moaning and stuff like that. He said, y'all like a little bunch of girls and everything. So Alphonse Dodson said, Coach, what you mean? He said, we're doing everything. You actually say, but you're moaning and groaning because you got to be out here for full 30. He said, hell, didn't y'all see when y'all were coming out here and that dog down here, the band just leaving? He said, hell, the band gets tougher than you guys. Nobody groaned about nothing else anymore. <laughs> but that's just the way you were. Yeah, that's just the way he was. And then, like all good things, they come to an end, and so did Nimaya and Coach Robinson's time together at Grambling. And once again, during this ending, Coach Robinson played a critical role in Nimaya's future. When I got ready to go there, to leave Grambling and the Leafs, I knew that I wasn't going back home because I was from a family of seven, and I was number three that was four at home, and Mother was having a hard time taking care of them. And he just told me, you got to be a man and start picking up the load, you know. And so I realized that I had opportunities to do it, so I was just going to be a school teacher, you know. That's what everybody else do when they graduate and everything. But then I was an old supply of school teachers available. And everything, and so he said, what do you expect to do after you leave here now? So I said, well, I'm going to get a job and, and help my family. He said, no. He said, I'm going to help you with that. You know, he said, everybody else believes that you're too small to make it to professional football. And he said, uh, I think you're as good as most players that I've seen and everything like that, and he said, so I'm going to call and arrange for you to have a shot at making a team in the AFL. And so I said, I don't have no money to be doing like that. He said, I'm going to talk to a friend of mine and have him just give you a $500 check to go to Denver and see whether or not you like the job that you're going for or whatever. So I came to Denver to see. I said, well, I ain't got to do nothing but go to Denver for $500. And if I put a good thing, ain't coming out to $500, I'm going to see. And when I got here, it was the Denver Broncos. Didn't know it was them at first. And everything, we got here. And uh, they decided to give me the shot based on his word and everything. And, you know, the rest is history. I've never looked back. And when we asked Nimai if he knew which of Eddie's friends provided the $500 for him to go to Denver and try out, he told us that Eddie wouldn't tell him. But he always thought that Eddie did it himself. Eddie did it. He just didn't want to take credit for it. And by the way, just a little bit more about this man uh, from his autobiography. And this is just a bit about his character when he was young. 
And during the summers while he was in high school, Eddie chose voluntarily to pick cotton. It wasn't so much for the money, he said. I wanted to use the hard work as a way to build up my body to get ready to play football. The other pickers couldn't understand me then, but I was using the remnants of slavery and sharecropping to my advantage instead of being used by others. I don't know how you stop a guy like this. I really don't. And this just shows you in the end the power of the mind, the power of character to overcome almost any obstacle. And then that Eddie Robinson chose to train up more men instead of take care of himself and do that for his entire, entire life, breaking every record, coaching record imaginable. Bear Bryant's, for goodness sake. And only one man has broken Eddie's career win record, the late Joe Paterno. When we come back, more on Coach Eddie Robinson, born on this day in history in 1919. This is Our American Stories, the final segment in our in our hour-long celebration of Coach Eddie Robinson, who was born on this day in history in 1919, 56 years coaching at Grambling State University, 408 wins, but more important than that, all the lives saved and changed, all the men he mentored, and we're hearing and have heard from just one, and my goodness, Nimaya's voice is just... Well, it's fantastic. And we have one more clip from him. And again, that's Nemaya Wilson, one of Coach Robinson's players, who he helped teach how to be a man and helped him get to the pros. And Nemaya went on to a decade-long career as the lightest player at 165 pounds. Here he is on occasionally visiting with Eddie in Denver when Nemaya was playing with the Denver Broncos. While I was here in Denver, when I first got here and everything, Eddie would be at the coaching clinic with all whites. He'd be the only black guy there and everything else like that. And I went and picked him up one night at the hotel here in Denver. And he said, Nehemiah, he said, yeah, he said, you mind if a couple of my buddies come along with me? I said, no, coach. You know, a friend of yours is a friend of mine. And Woody Hayes and all of them jumped in the car. And that's the thing about Coach. He didn't see race. To him, they were all God's children. And he had a surprising message about race, rarely heard today. In one of the forwards to Coach Robinson's autobiography, Richard Lapchick wrote about this message, writing, quote, 
In spite of the racial barriers that surrounded his life, Coach somehow maintained a positive attitude about opportunity in America for people of all colors. Coach believes, quote, we are in a position to do a lot of good, and that's the real importance of this work. America offers more opportunity to young people than any other country in the world. And Coach set out to teach this to his players. Let's take a listen to him talking about teaching this love of country to the next generation. I believe about the youth like I think about football. Every football team has to be taught blocking and tackling. And every generation has got to be taught uh, Americanism. If you don't teach them, they're not going to get it through osmosis. I want to be an American football coach. Whatever contributions that uh, uh, Warner, Stagg, or Coach Bryant made, I want mine to stand out equal to those. I just want to stand for whatever is good in our society. And now, whatever that is, that's what Eddie Robinson wants to be. Eddie further stated, quote, Some have called me a great black coach. All my life, I have simply wanted to be a great American. If football helped me achieve that, then I am once again grateful for this wonderful game. And he was successful in inculcating this message of his, of American opportunity, inside the souls of his players. Let's take a listen to one of them, Doug Williams, who went on to become the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. And he also won the Super Bowl MVP after passing for a Super Bowl record of 340 yards at the time and another record of passing for four touchdowns in a single quarter. Here's Doug Williams. Coach didn't look at it from the, from the X's and the O's and, and the fundamentals uh, on the football field, but he did look at it from the fundamentals of real life and going out in America and understanding that there's no excuses just because you was a black young man. That was no excuse for you not being able to survive, being able to be successful and do the things that you were capable of doing. He made sure we understood that. I want to read to you more moving passages from Coach Eddie Robinson's autobiography, and these are about race. Here's the first on when he was a young boy. Quote, Like all black people, Daddy and I had Joe Lewis in common. I know a lot of white people also liked Joe Lewis, especially after he beat the German boxer Max Schmeling. That was the very first time I had ever heard a black person called an American. The announcer said, the American is entering the ring. That moment still lives with me today. I waited another three decades before I was called an American for the first time. I had to leave the country for that to happen, just like Joe Lewis. For me, I was called an American when we were in Tokyo to play. White people are often called great Americans. If you are black, it seemed to me at the time like you had to leave the country to be called what you'd always been. Black people loved Joe Lewis because he always said the right thing and was our role model. He would have been great in any business or profession, but he was a boxer. Joe Lewis sold more radios and newspapers in the black community than any other person. I bet there wasn't a black family in America that didn't buy a radio sometime during his career. And of course, that was to listen to the fights back before people had TVs and just gathered around the radio. Here's another passage on race and America from when he was Grambling's coach. Quote, 
We knew the places where blacks could go, and we usually did. But as the movement heated up, so did our challenges. One time, we decided that we would try to eat at a Holiday Inn on the way to Houston. We called and asked them if they would serve us a meal, and were surprised that they said it wouldn't be any problem. We told the manager that we would have our players go through the buffet line like they do at Grambling, eat, and then leave. The manager admitted that the hotel was struggling for money, so they would do what they had never done before, serve blacks. Nonetheless, we were concerned because the manager might react a little differently when 45 large black men poured out of a bus and into his hotel lobby. We got off the bus with ties, slacks, and jackets. Our coaches had talked to the team about how to act and what to expect. We went through different possibilities, including what to do if someone offended us. We didn't want to take any chances that we would provoke anything. After we finished eating, our student-athletes put everything back that was supposed to be put back. Our business manager paid the bill, and we began to leave. Then the hotel manager stopped us and asked, Can you look me up on the return trip? Tell us what time you're going to be passing through. We'll be here to serve you. From then on, we never had any problem with that kind of thing. There is too much competition out there. Heck, we are buying 50 to 60 meals at each stop. The dollar is all American. It doesn't know black from white. But it took until the late 1970s for some American businessmen to recognize that the dollar was colorblind, Robinson continued. We tested the waters early, but I know those young people tested a lot more at lunch counters in Greensboro and the Freedom Rides, which opened up interstate transportation throughout the South. They helped us get served that day at the Holiday Inn. We had some student-athletes who were activists during these times when the civil rights movement was peaking. I wasn't sure how to handle the protests. People were getting killed and hurt in the civil rights movement. I knew I didn't want that to happen to any of my guys. At the same time, I was grateful that some people had the courage to make a stand for us all. But the parents of my student-athletes were expecting me to take care of their son's education, safety, and well-being. Therefore, I saw some danger coming. I headed my student-athletes away from it. I know that in the minds of some people, I shouldn't have done that. But that's who I am. I believe that if I'm the leader, then I'm supposed to take some criticism when I tell my student-athletes what's right and what's wrong. I know there were people who were giving me the Uncle Tom stigma, but I was doing what I believe was the right thing. I wasn't going to go out and hurt someone or let one of my own get hurt to disprove that I was an Uncle Tom. And if an NFL team saw a guy protesting, I'm sure it would have been reluctant to draft him. I don't think that's right, but I am quite sure it was true. I told my student-athletes that every NFL owner is white, Nobody who looked like me has ever owned an NFL team. So if an owner thinks one of my student-athletes hates whites because he reads about him protesting, he's not going to take him. Protesting doesn't mean hating others. It means just the opposite. But if it's misrepresented or misinterpreted, then one more door would quickly be shut. Doors, by the way, that Robinson was always trying to open. Their battlefield in the civil rights movement was to try to get more black players on the national playing field to make black excellence impossible to ignore and equated with American excellence. Different people, different battlefields in the civil rights movement and every movement, but in the end all working towards the same goal, 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Coach Eddie Robinson, the black football coach who most catalyzed the integration of football in the South, born on this day in history, I want to close with a touching moment that occurred just before his passing on April 3rd, 2007. He was suffering from Alzheimer's, and many of his players returned one last time to his home to sing him this, the Grambling Fight Song. And there you have it, the boys, the men, singing to the man who taught them how to be men. Coach Eddie Robinson for the hour. He was born on this day in history in 1919. Grambling State University was where he coached. But America, the world, that was his canvas. And he changed the world through a little sport called football. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network to hear all that we do and all of our This Days and Histories. There are over 125 now, and I think you'll find so many of them as compelling.